Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Joining us today is Bridge Colby, the co-founder and principal at the Marathon Institute, who is the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy and Force Development uh, during the Trump administration, where he was one of the principal authors of the 2018 National Defense Strategy that was widely acclaimed. Uh, last September, Bridge completed his first book, The Strategy of Denial Defense in the Age of Great Power Conflict. It is a great work and would make a great textbook that includes uh, very thoughtful historical examples in explaining the various strategic tools in the national uh, and international toolboxes. Uh, this conversation is sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems and devoted to the memory of one of the nation's greatest national security strategists, Andy Marshall, the former director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. Bridge, it's great to have you on the program. I'm glad you're joining us for this strategy discussion. Great to be on with you, Vago. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Thanks. Uh, in, in, indeed. And before we get started, Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems also coverage uh, co uh, sponsors our broader strategy coverage and Huntington Ingalls Industries sponsored uh, our coverage of the Surface Navy Association's recent conference and trade show. Uh, Bridge, uh, absolutely uh, loved the book, um, and uh, your historical examples are, are terrific, whether uh, they're from the ancient world, whether they're World War II, whether they're Civil War, uh, whether it's Napoleon. I love, you know, well, you know, if you want to go to Vienna, why aren't you making this complicated? Just go to Vienna, right? I mean, a lot of terrific examples uh, in there. And, and also explaining, right, all of uh, the vast assortment of strategic concepts uh, that we're dealing with, right? What is denial? What is dissuasion? What is deterrence? Uh, what are each of their roles? Uh, coalition building, uh, fate accomplice, and all of that. And we'll get to that in a minute. Um, even though I'm not particularly crazy about the term great power competition, because I think it's self-evident any more than I like the term integrated deterrence, because all of it is really integrated all the time and, and, and should be. Um, we were also... There are some things that are very alike and, and historically aligned now, but there are also things that are different, right? Great powers have always tussled uh, for superiority. There is always a hegemon. That hegemon then loses its edge. Um, we're in a, probably a more technologically leveled age than probably we've been in since maybe the 1700s, uh, which is uh, different. Um, but also there are different means of communication and disinformation, which are problematic, and a globally integrated economy, which makes sanctioning kind of problematic. Where are we sort of writ large in this historic moment? How do we need to think about the moment if we're actually going to make sense about what good sound strategy is in this moment? Well, great. Well, thanks a lot, Vago. I mean, I, I you know, my book is, is deductive, but I tried to use the history it's in a way, it's almost like a, like a reality check because it, you know, it, I mean, in, in a sense, it connects like concepts that can be quite theoretical um, and seem very abstract to reality. And I think it's, a, you know, it's, so it's kind of keeps you tethered. And I, I tried to use some, I mean, Tom Schelling was the master at this. I wouldn't, I wouldn't presume to, to compare myself, but I, I tried to take some inspiration, some of the, you know, like the use of the idea of like a credit report. I mean, I think the, the notion, for instance, that credibility has no relevance international politics well anybody who's applied for a mortgage knows that that's not not the case so so i think i think you know i'm glad to hear that it resonated i i i wish i'd been able to get you know i'm i'm too american focused probably but but maybe in another edition i'll i'll try to i'll try to flesh it out um but i think look i think you know the world that we're living in is going to be primarily bipolar so i think great power is the right but i mean i think there are two 
the United States and China, which are overwhelmingly larger than ever, everybody else. And, and then there will, I, I sort of think of it as features of multipolarity. So not, not a kind of strict bipolarity where, where, you know, nobody else has any agency, although I'm not sure that ever exists, but, but, but kind of the, the predominant key is, is bipolarity because, you know, and this is, I think something that my impression is that the Russians maybe misassess, I don't know, is that I think a lot of the, the, the secondary powers, you know, Japan, India, et cetera, are going to be pretty much aligned with us because of the threat from China. So I think, I mean, I think that great power thing, the, the competition thing, I was always a bit uh, of two minds because it's sort of, well, it, it, it's like a something that is a bit narrow. I mean, it's it's really more like great power rivalry or you know great a great power dynamic or whatever. But but I think that's the defining feature of our of our time and and will be for the foreseeable future unless China completely craters, which is possible but unlikely. Um, it's uh, it's interesting, uh, right? And and that causes, by the way, right this whole notion of breaking China. I think. Uh, both pun and no pun intended, um, is, is problematic, right? Because they actually become more dangerous the more you sort of damage them, right? So, I mean, you note that in the book, you, you need to be able to calibrate this and balance this right because your ultimate aim is, is actually to avoid uh, crisis, right? You want to do everything um, to, to stop them. And one of the things we, we should have said at the top, right, is that the, this is the first time in a long time where one of the major players is not playing by an international white accepted rule book, basically, right? It's, it's doing whatever it wants in the way that it wants to do it uh, to undermine the, the global rules-based order. In your book, you rightly maintain, as Andy Marshall would, would applaud, uh, is that to deter China, you have to actually do a lot of hard work to understand what their plans are in order to be able to best deter them, right? Um, you've spent a lot of time studying what their plan is. What is their plan for those people who are maybe uh, adopting their own strategy of denial, of, of not really paying attention to the capabilities uh, and the intentions and the clarity with which actually China is communicating this with us? Well, it's, I mean, it's an interesting point, Vago. I mean, I think that my book is very deductive. So it's kind of takes China as a black box. And that's partially a function of my own, you know, uh, I wouldn't, I'm not ignorant, but I'm not, uh, I'm not an expert on Chinese decision-making. But I also think, you know, from a, from a, um, you know, strategic point of view, long-term defense planning kind of point of view, we're best off using a kind of rationalistic model of state behavior, kind of a realist model in particular, as, you know, our baseline. And then we can use in-depth understanding to try to improve on that. But I, you know, that's partially because I think states tend to move, you know, adhere to kind of realist principles over time, but also because I think of the the, the difficulties of really un- ascertaining what the other side's actual plans are. I mean, I go into this in the book, you know, that, I mean, plans can change, of course, is the classic realist point, or they can, you know, I mean, operational plans fall into the enemy's hands and they have to be changed. I mean, that's what happened in, in the Ardennes, right, in 1940. So so we have to, you know, I make a strong argument, this is really born of my Pentagon experience, that we need to we need to have a clear sense of what we're planning for, and that must be the other side's best strategy. And, and actually, Red does not have a monopoly on what their best strategy is. They might have a monopoly on certain kinds of tactical information they have, but that's a kind of an objective assessment. And this, this sort of triggered some people, you know, for whom, many of whom I have very high regard, but who are more focused on, um, you know, on, on, on what, how Red acts and a deep understanding of leadership dynamics and strategic culture. And I mean, at the end of the day, I think these two ways of looking at the world, mine being kind of deductive and sort of like rationalistic and the other one being more, you know, focused on empirics and stuff. 
I think they're compatible. I mean, if I were, if I were saying, you know, if, if, if I were advising like the president, I would say, well, you should listen to my perspective, but you should also try to get as good an understanding of, you know, red leadership as possible. But I think at the end of the day, we should, the deductive approach should be our basic because things can change so much over time and, and, and all the other reasons. But I think this is a, this is an important, but in that light, I think that the, you know, I don't know whether China's thinking it, but I, I give China a lot of credit. I think they're really smart and capable and strong. So I would, I, I give them the due, in my view, of thinking that they will realize what their best strategy is. And my view, and it's, I, I'm happy to be proved wrong, I haven't seen a, a convincing counterargument, but is that their best strategy is what I call this focused and sequential kind of strategy to break apart and short circuit that an anti-hegemonic coalition in order to avoid a full-scale total war with an assembled group of enemies, which is not a good strategy. That's what Hitler did, it's dumb. Um, so I think that's what we really have to work. And that leads to a military strategy of the fait accompli. Now the fait accompli, how that's actually put into practice can take very different forms in terms of its expansiveness and violence. But at the end of the day, it's still a kind of the employment of a limited war to achieve systemic changes. And that's, you know, I keep going, I always go back to, to the example of the wars of German unification, where you have a, you know, large wars by contemporary, by today's standards, although not necessarily by 19th century European standards, but ones that had systemic effects on the international system that were, I mean, in a sense that were mind boggling, that, that had been a, a fixed verity of European politics for hundreds of years that Germany would not be unified by, you know what I mean? And then right. suddenly it changed. So that's, that's what I'm worried about. And that's, I think their best strategy. I'm not so worried about their quote unquote likeliest strategy, which is a lot of attention people get the gray zone stuff, I think is basically a distraction. Um, so that's why I really focus and that leads me to really be focused on denial and including in the military context. And, and so uh, to the point, what, what's the best way to deter uh, China? Because you go through this in enormous detail uh, about the elements that, you know, all, all, of, all of the sticks that uh, go into the log cabin. Right. Well, I think to, to bring it to, I think, and one of the reasons it's such a pleasure to talk to you, in addition to just being able to talk to a friend, is, is also to talk to a real defense specialist uh, group. I mean, I wrote this book for multiple audiences. I mean, the broader public, you know, kind of foreign policy, policymaker types, but also in particular, defense specialists, military officers and enlisted and, and civilian defense specialists and experts, because in a sense, that's the community that I'm that, that's most concerned with this, right? Um, so it's great. And I, so I'll get, get to the point. I mean, I think what we need is a military strategy of denial. And that denial, it's ultimately a political goal. I mean, I'm a Clausewitzian in the deepest sense, right? That you know, he says there's the war is the continuation of politics by other means, but he actually says something more. He says every military you know, action should have the political object in mind. That doesn't mean necessarily to be constrained. It might make it more violent, but it, it's all the political and the military are always need to be interrelated. And I think that's like, the, the, in a sense, the theme of my book, always designed for effective deterrence. So if we step back, you know, I am, sometimes I get criticized for being a warmonger, which I find just kind of ironic and ridiculous, but, you know, I am absolutely persuaded that, what I am trying to do is to avoid war. I think the most dangerous course of action right now is, is, the, is the most plausible alternative to what I'm saying, which is insufficient action, because that will open right. the field for war. Just because, somebody, just because somebody doesn't want to build up the military and doesn't want a war doesn't mean that war is less likely. What your intent is, is immaterial. It's the result of, of uh, the consequences of your action. And as you know, Weber put it, we should be thinking about the consequences of our, of our, of our actions. So military denial means basically defending our allies within this anti-hegemonic coalition, including Taiwan, sufficient to a sufficient degree to allow them to keep going. So it's a relative standard, depends on the degree of resolve. 
Um, but that's, that's, you know, that's, that's very, that's very important. And that's critical. And I think Vago, if I could kind of bring it to the policy level for a second, I think this is where the real defense debate is and where I'm most concerned about the 2022 national defense strategy is because, you know, and I think people like uh, Congressman Mike Gallagher are very eloquent on this point. You know, my view is that we need to achieve this denial standard, not something less, you know, I mean, for want of a shoe, the kingdom was lost. If we get some denial and some horizontal escalation and some international opprobrium for China, if it's easy, that's not going to be sufficient. We need to have real denial. Now, that doesn't mean dominant. That's a lot lower standard than the military has been preparing for over the last generation. But that's not that's not a half hearted, half baked kind of approach. It's full scale denial against the largest military power. I mean, certainly since the Soviet Union, in some ways, even before. So I think that's where I really and, and go and you, you point out that I lay it out in, in pretty exhaustive detail and, and more like the exhaustive logic. I don't care what that military force looks like. And that's one of the reasons, you know, speaking to the defense establishment, I don't take a position on whether, I mean, from my point of view, if we could defend Taiwan with bows and arrows and slingshots, okay, whatever. But I mean, obviously that's not going to be the case, but right. I'm concerned about the goal and how we do it that's in a way that's that's consistent with with a, a plot, you know limited war but i think that's we need to meet that standard and if we only get 75% of the way that's unsat because that we'll still lose and it gets back to that the logic which is you know yes deterrence by cost imposition can work if the opponent perceives you as very resolute on the issue that's why nuclear deterrence for one's home territory while not perfect tends to be more credible but this is at the raggedy edge of our alliance network. So this notion that we are going to be more resolute over the issue than China is sort of absurd on its face. So we need to, you know, the other form of deterrent. I'm not theological about it. If we could do deterrence by cost imposition, that would be great. Dwight Eisenhower pulled it off in the 50s. But it's not credible. It's not, it's not believable. And we don't want to take any risk that Beijing will miscalculate uh, or, or may actually, actually correctly calculate that we're not willing to go to the map. So we should have denial. And they should understand that they will fail because they care a ton about Taiwan. This is often something that like this area specialist, I think, overlook is, of course, they care about Taiwan, but Mao Zedong cared deeply about Taiwan. He may have cared more about Taiwan than uh, uh, Xi Jinping. I mean, I'm sure he would have loved to get his hands around Chiang Kai-shek's neck, but he didn't, he couldn't do it. So he didn't really try. And that's the, that's, that's the situation we want. Let me ask the deterrence window uh, question. Um, I, I think you get kudos because you did not write a political book. You wrote a practical, here's the problem, here are possible solutions, here's how to think about it. Um, and yet our political scene is highly divided, right? Which is a positive, whether you're sitting in Moscow or, or, or Beijing. Um, we, um, at a casual glance, um, right? The Chinese uh, can, can do uh, strategic and tactical math. They know what their capabilities are. They know abundantly what our capabilities are. They know we don't have long range effectors. Um, we're being pushed further out to sea if we want to get in close. Um, we don't have the means to defend ourselves from the volume and the type of things they're going to shoot at us, right? So all of a sudden, this gets very problematic. You know, submarines and the undersea is, play, is one place we have an advantage. Their terrestrial, you know, mainland air defense network is, is uh, superb, uh, right? And now increasingly, we're seeing Chinese academics, as, as we saw last week or this week, uh, saying, hey, we're going to take Taiwan by 2027 uh, and we'll do it in about a week. And if Japan gets in the way, we'll take Japan uh, too. Right. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Uh, this guy's not a loon. Right. Mm -hmm. um, 
and, and suggests that our fundamental approach, that our deterrence is failing. What is our deterrence window here, Bridge? Uh, my concern has been this has been eroding for a very long time. And, you know, it was only until like two years ago or so we were like, wow, this is going to this is really bad. Um, yeah. You know, what's what's our deterrence window? How long do we have to get our act in a row? And then I want to talk in a moment about what are some of the things we do to get our act in a, in a row. Well, we have negative time. We're already behind the curve. So, I mean, the bottom line is, you know, all these people who are talking, I mean, Kirby said the other day that we can walk and shoot gum at the same time. And I, I, I also think that's like slap the table, like kick the guy out of the room kind of comment now. And I've heard it some from Republican friends of mine and stuff like that. So, I mean, that is a part, but it's just like a ridiculous comment because I think actually, um, I think the, by far the more uh, the, the critique of my arguments, particularly vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan, that I find much harder to deal with uh, and people like Lyle Goldstein is that we're toast. You know, this notion that like that that I'm exaggerating the threat is just like facially ridiculous if you look at what the Chinese are doing. But the notion that we may be, you know, our goose may be cooked, uh, that's a harder one. I don't think that's true, uh, but I think it's 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 definitely within the realm of the possibility. And if we can, you know, we've already continued ignoring the massive tumor growing on our, you know, pick your part of the body, you know, and uh, now we're like, ah, oh, yes, yeah, I'm you know, still not really going to take care of it. I'm going to work on my tennis elbow or something, you know, arthritis or something. Um, so I think we're in real, we're in real trouble. And I think you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, the Chinese, and they continue to exceed our, our expectations, at least in the open source of what they're capable of doing. I mean, I, I always point to my, my, good friend and, and, you know, great expert, Tom Shugart. I mean, his, his writings on, and on Twitter and stuff about how the Chinese have exceeded our expectations on sort of, I think it's, you know, MRBMs and IRBMs and, and what that suggests their, their naval buildup space, you know, the development of Marine Corps, et cetera. So, so that's all the good thing we have going for us is if, and then what I'm trying to do in this book. And, and again, for my Pentagon experience is really laser in on what we need to be focused on. It's like, we don't need it because we don't have the, we don't have the time or space or resources to be fuzzy. We just need to defeat that invasion, basically, you know, because I think if they're in a blockade situation, it's not good for them. That's going to be hard, too. But that's kind of something we can probably deal with and, and certainly something less than a blockade. But if we can defeat the invasion, you know, and, and you mentioned historical references, I quote Hugh Dowding, the, the air marshal during the Battle of Britain. You know, I mean, he said his job was not to win the whole war. His job was to defeat the invasion. And he was able to do that against the much larger military. That's what we need. So yes, they can shoot missiles and project power and stuff, but we can also, I mean, this is something we can do. <laughs> you know, I'm on the aerospace report. We are really good at aerospace and maritime at the end of the day. We're a democracy. We're good at technology. We're basically a world island. Maritime power, it's kind of a Bob work type stuff. You know, let's let's focus up on that. The thing is, Vago, is that we haven't done it. You know, it's like for 10 years, there've been these analyses on improving the Western Pacific posture and we haven't done anything, you know? Right. And so well, and there's that. I mean, our, I think, you know, you said some nice things about the NDS of 2018. I appreciate it. I mean, I think I agree with you that, that it's implementation has been much less than what I would have hoped. I would, I will say that I think it has resulted in building, as you indicated on things that Bob and others did in the third offset, you know, Dave Ockmanic, Frank Kendall's, you know, there has been, you know, there has been an impact, but the, but we're not racing against ourselves. We're racing against the, the largest economy to emerge in the international system since, since the late 19th century, since we did, you know, and, and we're, and we're, and we're behind. And that's what, and that's what worries me. And that's what informs my view about like Europe or Iran is, you know, people smoking, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, illegal substance who are thinking that we're going to kind of use up a bunch of munitions and ISR and logistics, and then be even farther behind where we are. So like, you know, when you ask how much time we have, we're, ne we're negative time. 
And so this, this is where I get my sort of urgencies because the window issue I think is very real. Now, you know, I think there's three things that probably go into a window. You know, one is will. Well, manifestly, they have the will to take Taiwan, obviously. I think that's, and then two, do they have the capability? Well, if they're not there yet, they're clearly very close, right? And then there's a couple of things they need to fix, like am amphibious vessels, maybe, although they may have some, they may, they may be thinking they're going to use civilian shipping as Tom and others point out. And then the third reason is a sense of urgency or a closing window. Now, my view of the closing window, the most persuasive, and again, I'm influenced by Tom here, is that a lot of our investments that did start with third offset in 2018 NDS and accelerated, you know, that Dave Norquist worked on and others, is they can see that that's going to come into the force in the late 20s, early 30s. Whereas they're ready now because they've been preparing for the Taiwan scenario for right. 25 years. Some people talk about China might collapse in the 2030s. I don't tend to credit that particularly, um, you know, because I, I just don't know. And people who are putting money to work seem to think China's still got growth, but, um, but it's possible. Um, but I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very worried. So I think, you know, we need to cover down in the next few years and prepare for the long term. in the way, you know, my favorite analogy here is heart disease. I mean, if you have acute heart disease, yeah, you need to change your diet and work out more, but you also need to get a stent you know, and take a statin. Right. So, I mean, that's, that's where I think that's where I think we are. And we basically need to drop everything else other than nukes and a low cost CT and focus on, on being able to defend Taiwan. Cause if we can do that, we can do Japan, Philippines and South Korea, basically. I believe, you know, uh, Bob work and, you know, you mentioned Bob and Frank Kendall, right. I, th I think the Obama administration deserves credit for having had that sort of urgent sort of like We've got to change. We've got to change quickly. We have to field uh, capabilities, uh, the third offset conversation. And obviously, that was a focus of the administration in which you served. And we're hearing uh, now uh, Frank Kendall, as secretary of the Air Force, talking about the, the dire need uh, to further accelerate. It's not like we don't have stuff. It's just that we don't have as much stuff as we would like. Um, and the problem with messaging, obviously, here is every time we've uh, discreetly uh, showed capability to the Chinese, they tend to copy it really quickly, right? I mean, so there is this uh, importance of keeping some stuff uh, obviously out of, uh, out, of, out of the conversation. But one of the things, uh, Bridge, that we, we haven't done, and you mirrored that frustration, is you know, we're still spending money on the wrong things. Uh, we've been talking about years, right? Next year is always the year the big choices will happen and the big choices don't happen. Congress comes up with more money uh, to do the old stuff and not really as much money to do the new stuff, right? Not as many long range effectors, not many, much new thinking on defense, uh, right? Ultimately, where is it we should be putting the money? What are the capabilities we need to be building? Uh, and then I'll follow up with sort of how the, we have to shore up alliances because this is highly problematic for our allies and partners as well, right? I mean, they're looking at our capabilities and they can do math also, right? So they're somewhat less convinced we're as great as we think we are or say we are when they look at our capabilities and go, you know, it's obvious you guys don't have that capability, right? And hence that's the core of right. dissuasion, denial, deterrence or anything else. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, I'm not, I mean, you know, I, this is, you know, sort of advisedly, this is a defense strategy book. And I, and I didn't get down to level uh, again, not because I'm, as again, I'm not ignorant, but I, there are people who are much more expert than I, in terms of exactly what we might do. I wanted to try to set out the criteria and it's actually a similar mentality I pursued in, in the Pentagon is I don't pretend to be to tell the air force or the Marines how to suck eggs about what their business is, but it, it is the job of the civilian strategist to connect clearly not just elucidate these vague ends and so forth, like a lot of these 
documents have in the past, but to clearly elucidate what, what the criteria are and give very great specificity. And then it's on, you know, uniform, but also, you know, defense experts in the, in, in the civilian world, et cetera, many of whom retired military to, 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 I think, to try to have that debate, but we want the debate in the right context. But I mean, that said, I mean, I'm very sympathetic uh, to arguments like what, you know, what, they, what I mentioned, Dave, you know, Akmanik has been, you know, and Bob also, I mean, uh, about, you know, I mean, Dave, I think put out in a, in a report a couple of years ago, maybe a year or two ago, you know, that we could basically do the Taiwan thing at a, an additional, I don't know, 30 to 50 billion. I mean, a relatively small portion of the defense budget, but it's, you know, it's the usual, I mean, Dustin Walker had a good piece about, you know, the bureaucratic orphans uh, problem, you know, with forward posture, with munitions, you know, and all these things. So, I mean, others will be better equipped to say exactly what, what we should do, but, you know, we want to be able to sink the invasion fleet fast. We want to be, shoot down the air armada fast. We want to be able to kill, you know, capture or eject what, whatever soldiers land on Taiwan. We want to be able to, you know, sustainably uh, break a blockade to the degree necessary to keep Taiwan going on. Whatever that is, that's what we should be doing, you know? And I, it, I mean, it manifest. I mean, that's the thing, you know, Clint Hynot said a couple of months ago, you know, people always say, oh, we're losing the war games. Okay. Yes, correct. But, but Q said, but we know how to win them, but we're not doing the things that we need to do to do it. And that's what drives me up the wall is like, I mean, are we really in a situation where as a country, we are going to just kind of let this happen, you know, for things that are pretty marginal, like I am not, I'd actually rather spend, if anything, less on defense, probably, you know, in a, in a perfect world, I think we could rationalize our defense establishment and have, and really focus on the things we need to do and end up spending less. But if we're not going to do that, if we're going to keep, you know, the, the, the old things, probably an army larger than we need and so forth, that's based in the continental United States and so forth. Okay. That's a political decision by the American people, but then let's, then, then we should really spend the extra money necessary to do what we really need. And I mean, in fairness to Congress, I mean, I think they put, they were unsatisfied with the administration's 22 budget. And that's why they've reacted by adding more money and focusing it on PDI. So I, again, I mean, I'm not, you know, I think there is, there, there is momentum, there is progress, but I'm just, it's, it's not, um, it's not sufficient. And then on allies and partners, if I can jump ahead, I mean, I, I just think, I think, you know, my, my view of allies and partners is they, they are more like um, it's, it, I think of them as like a, an old school, like law firm, private partnership, or like an old school bank or whatever, where the partners, you know, there is a personal element. They're often friends. There is, but fundamentally it's a business, you know, it's a business endeavor. I mean, the president talks about sacred obligation to NATO. No, the sacred obligation is to the American people. And we need our, our alliances are ultimately instruments of that. They're, they're noble instruments and they deserve respect and they have a storied history, but they have to serve the interest of the American people. And that's, that requires being nice to them, but actually it requires being tough on them in an intelligent way. I mean, the Germans right now are, I mean, it's nearly hostile policy. I mean, certainly if I were in Poland or Ukraine, I would regard it as effectively hostile. Now the Japanese are moving and the, and the Taiwans are moving, but way too slowly. I mean, we should be putting intense pressure. I tell the Japanese this themselves, our, our alliance with Japan is in crisis because they're still spending close to 1% on defense. Now we should help them, and we should support them in the right ways, but we need that. We need a much different relationship. And this is an area where we vacillated between these. I mean, I think President Obama was kind of like passive aggressive. You know, President Trump was like berating them tough on them. And then President Biden's like, you know, praising them to the stars. And like, we need something that's, you know, more like, I don't know, with lack of a better word, strategic, which includes both positive elements, but also pressure. Um, because this is not, you know, they don't exist 
for their own sake, they exist for our strategic interests. I mean, enlightened strategic interests, but, and they, you know, our interests are aligned, but they need to, that they need to change to adapt to that. How, how do we, you, you said a lot that's totally on the mark uh, there, uh, by the way, but how do we, right, each of our allies and partners do what they do because that's what they do. We're not, uh, certainly in the Pacific, as integrated as we need to be. I don't even think South Korean and American forces are as integrated as we need to be. Um, scrape on Japanese-U.S. integration, not as good as it needs to be, right? We're improving it, but it's not as good as it needs to be. And we find that there are disconnects even in NATO, right? Rail gauges, for for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and to your point, um, the, the, the Germans are... Uh, it, part of, I think, Putin's strategy is to let natural political gravity do his job for him, right? Here's how these guys are going to behave. Uh, and, and all of a sudden, the Poles and the Balts and everybody else get worked up because they're like, what, you're seriously not allowing overflight over your territory? I mean, that's kind of should be a bare minimum, right, of, of what <laughs> you, you're going to allow. Not allow reconnaissance planes to fly over Germany. So in this day and age, in 2022, yeah. Bridge, our planes are flying all the way around uh, Germany in order to get to obscene uh, theater, actually, right? Frankly, yeah. ridiculous. Um, now, um, how how do we need to work with allies and partners? Right, they're not integrated. Uh, they're not developing the right kinds of capabilities. Big concerns about whether the Taiwanese are spending money where they should be spending. Hey, guys, you may not need submarines. You you may not need some of the fighter aircraft you're buying. Here's what you need a lot more of. Right, right? for example. Where, how do we need to do this with allies and partners? I completely agree with the tough love part, right. but you also want to maintain that coalition, right? Uh, which uh, the, the, the hegemon is trying to constantly unravel using its own vast levers uh, from uh, what it can use as coercion, what it can threaten as punishment, what it can uh, do on the economic front uh, to, to any of these nations. None of them have worked. Australia failed, Japan, right. pressure ultimately failed. Right. But how do we need to think about this and how do we need to get allies to actually do what is in our collective interest as opposed to the shiny object that they may be particularly or interested in? Or free riding. I mean, I, yeah, I think, I think this needs, I mean, line of effort two of the national defense strategy was a different approach to allies and partners. And, and often on the outside, it was talked about as um, kind of a reassurance thing, which is not actually what the logic was, but it was rather a, a new adapted approach to allies and partners, which I think is is a basically a you know a rational combination uh, to a very serious problem. This is something I'm actually thinking about a lot. A lot is the is is you know basically the burden sharing problem, which is that we for a variety of reasons and it's rational behavior on their part. They you know key elements of our alliance network. People say that our alliance network is the most valuable thing, but that's a latent value. It's not really. I mean from a military planning point of view, as you know, most of the time people don't assume any allied material allied involvement, except maybe the Brits, the Australians or whatever, you know what I mean? In, in, in relatively modest increments. I mean, Europe's a little bit different, but, but Asia or something. So, you know, it, it's, it's, um, that's mostly theoretical and we need it to be less theoretical. And this is something, as I said, I've been thinking a lot about my view is not, is actually integration is not always the answer. In fact, I would, the, the countries that I think we should be more integrated with are Japan and Australia, because our focus, only we are, are big enough and rich enough to, to take on the Chinese directly to lead that. So we really have to focus on Asia and Taiwan. Everybody in Asia is going to have their hands full defending themselves. So I think like the South Koreans should basically be res- largely responsible for their own security, particularly uh, at the conventional level, we can help at the nuclear and kind of strategic level. But I mean, US forces in South Korea should over time should be oriented towards China, defending South Korea from China, which will become a realistic possibility. 
you know, so they're going to have their hands full. Taiwan's going to have their hands full. Vietnam, India, et cetera, is going to, we should kind of, um, I'll get to them in a second. But Japan and Australia, are the only ones I think in, in, in Asia that can contrib- realistically contribute to collective defense, particularly Taiwan. So there we should, we should strive for integration. So instead of having a CFC in South Korea, we should have CFC in Japan. Um, that's, the, that's the ideal. And, and David Sachs has a very good piece out from the Council on Foreign Relations recently, kind of thinking through this. Elsewhere, I actually think we want to dis- integrate, uh, you know, um, where we want to have much less of a, of a, of a, a role. Like, so I, in South Asia, I think we should basically be looking to kind of regional sheriff's model, division of labor. We should back the Indians. Fortunately, the Indians don't want a free ride. They want to do their own thing. Great. Let's make that as easy for them to do as possible and make them as strong. Ditto with the Abraham coalition, especially Israel in the Middle East. Now, Europe is the big problem because, you know, we've had huge free riding. Now the Poles do a good job. I mean, I can't like, why are we criticizing the Poles and not the Germans? The Germans are the problem. The Brits do a pretty good job. The French, I think there's a natural deal here, which is a more European NATO defense, which is, was the original vision anyway. And then we help them out. We should buy more European defense industry and so forth. But then, you know, where we're really going to need to focus is there are three, pro- there are three big problems. There's Japan, Germany, and Taiwan. I mean, Taiwan, you mentioned is the is the most vulnerable they're not buying the right things so i mean I, I, there's bills floating around in the hill that are very good that talk about conditionalizing aid um you know really making it uh, uh being prepared to help but only with the right things and then i think with japan and germany we need i mean japan is moving in the right direction but too slowly we need to really put the, the heat on them in a positive way but also be there you know look we're going to be here but you can't expect us to do this by ourselves and if you push it too hard you could break the alliance and there's a lot of different things to do. And then Germany, we need, to, I mean, Germany is one of the biggest problems in the, in the world. I mean, it, it is a huge problem uh, because Germany could solve the European security problem on its own if it wanted to, and it had a military to do so in the 1980s. So it's totally within its willpower. It's just a matter of, 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 of its resolve. And so we, you know, we need a much, I mean, I think the Biden administration seems to be pursuing almost the exact opposite of what we should be pursuing towards Germany. I'm not saying that we, you know, I think if we're too hard on them, we actually, we let them off the hook. So we need to be more um, sort of uh, kind of diplomatic about it, like cunning, you know, but I mean, you know, I think people in Europe can understand well, but there, what's there happening are those, now. But, but there are those who say that uh, Blinken and the administration in private is being very, very tough with the Germans. Um, so much so, in fact, that a friend of mine commented, it's like, you know, I, I didn't know Tony Blinken was such an SOB, uh, which I thought was an interesting comment. Um, that no disrespect to the Secretary of State. I think it was meant in a positive term that this guy's pretty tough. Um, I mean, what is it that they're how, how is it you bring Germany around? OK, how do you bring Japan around? Japan's a wealthy country. It could spend more money on defense if it wanted to. It hides, right? I mean, there's a whole bunch of historical neuralgia that goes with that. Uh, The Taiwanese kind of do what they do in the way that they do it. Um, A lot of concerns about whether or not they have the capability to protect themselves if they wanted to, in part because of societal trends, right? Some of the anecdotal stories you hear about, you know, the, uh, you know, inability to recruit, et cetera. Uh, And then you have the Germans um, who you know, spend a lot of time talking about why Russia and Germany are actually close and have a thousand years of friendship, you know, interrupted by occasional war, right? I mean, how, how do you convince yeah. these countries to do what it is in their own interest well, to deter conflict? So first of all, I mean, I think the model has to be right. So the Japanese are moving in the right direction. It's not because of our brilliance, either under the Trump administration or the uh, uh, Biden administration. It's it's the threat, right? And ditto with India. I mean, India didn't suddenly become closer to us because they like us more. It's the threat. So there it's just, and I, you know, 
well, and, 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 and Germany, I think we actually need to less this sort of three musketeers idea that sometimes you get from the administration, the alliance of democracies, because that's not going to fly. They're actually not interested. They're interested in making money. So get them to focus on what is in their immediate interest, which is securing Europe, um, which is a more plausible ask, I think. But I think, you know, just on with the administration, I mean, maybe that's true about Secretary Blinken. I don't know. But I mean, the obvious public messaging, which is, at some point, you know, I mean, we're talking about credibility, right, is that it's been very positive on Germany and completely took the pressure off which I think was not the right, not, and in fact, there were people who were arguing, who were not supporters of, of, the, of President Trump or anything, who were arguing, look, we should use this leverage. And basically that, that was dissipated. So, and I mean, Germany's not stupid. They know what's a credible you know, pressure. So if you know, Secretary Blinken is critic, criticizing them in private, that's a pretty mild form of pressure. I mean, I think Germ- what is a more credible form of pressure is the sense that Americans uh, are really getting a, a clear picture. You know, the Wall Street Journal ran a piece on Germany and that's what led to Ambassador Haber to go on Fox News and Brett Baer. And like, I mean, it's a pretty remarkable interview because there's a real sense that the American people are getting. I mean, so, you know, obviously the Biden administration, the Trump administration, there's huge differences. But I mean, in the, ge- in the grand geopolitical sense, it's pretty clear to everybody now that China's our priority. Threat, you know what I mean? So there's going to be continuity. But it's where these, it's the policy differences. I mean, look at the Russia situation. I mean, how did we get into, and I don't want to get like, but I mean, how have we gotten into a, a situation where, I mean, I don't know all the ins and outs of what happened, but manifestly, this has not been a successful policy vis-a-vis Russia, right? Or, vi- or the ability to, to shift. That shouldn't stop us from shifting to Asia. The fact that there's a crisis in Europe or even an invasion of Ukraine should not stop us because it doesn't change the fact that Asia is the priority for Americans' interests. But I think this could have been handled better. Um, and again, I'm not privy to all what's going on, but I think that's the, that's, I mean, it's just kind of, you, you shall know it by its fruits. You're one of the voices and you mentioned this, uh, uh, in, uh, earlier in the conversation, right? Get out of Afghanistan, uh, reduce the American footprint in the Middle East, uh, and reduce the American footprint in Europe, right? I mean, effectively outsource some of these things to our allies, uh, and, and partners to do, but even though we may not be interested in Europe and we may not be interested in the Middle East or in Afghanistan, each one of these places could remain interested in us. Uh, right. Sure. What is, what is, and oh, by the way, these nations, uh, whether it's China, Russia, Iran, or North Korea are now in greater cahoots against us, as we've seen demonstrated in this past extraordinary, uh, week. Uh, right. I mean, pretty much across the board, the four bad guys have given demands to the United States. Russia's doing what it wants right. in Ukraine. Iran allowed Houthis to strike uh, our allies. Uh, and then you have the North Koreans testing more missiles. Right. Where do we need to be? Do we have a choice not to be there? And what is an integrated strategy that deals with four actors that are able to wield considerable power? to help each other out and confound us and all of our allies. The most important thing, Vago, yes, we absolutely have a choice and we need to make the right one. So like this idea that we can't get out, we can't reduce or get out of these other theaters in a a significant military footprint is false. It's happened before. The British did it before World War One. As my partner, Wes Mitchell has written about very eloquently. I mean, it's possible to do it, you know, and like we got out of Indochina in the 1970s, it wasn't a great way, but, um, you know, like it's, it's a, it's a dangerous falsehood. And I'm not suggesting that you're saying it, but like, it's a dangerous falsehood that we cannot get out and, and we cannot afford not to get, not to reduce substantially. And in fact, not reducing substantially will not change the fact that we will need to 
change radically in the future. It will just make it all the more dramatic and sudden. I mean, the analogy I use is the East of Suez moment in 1967 when the Brits who had commitments to the Gulf monarchies just like cut them off because they couldn't afford it anymore. You know, and that's not good for anybody. It's not good for us, but it's definitely not good for the people who think that we're going to be there. And that's that's another well, thing. It was good the- for us. Right. I mean, we stepped in. And as we're dialing back, the Chinese are stepping in, whether sure. in Afghanistan or the Middle East. Yeah. But I mean, I'm like, OK, you know, a dagger pointed at the heart of Antarctica. I mean, I, I like, you know, the, the critical area is the is the Western. Well, Pacific. I would submit the Gulf is a little more important. Well, I was thinking, you, I mean, the Gulf as much is, as I love Gulf Antarctica. Is, is, Who the doesn't? Gulf is the fourth. I mean, it's a relatively. I mean, but anyway, the Chinese can't get there militarily through the Indians, right? So who who we should be? I mean, I, I, the, you know, if we can bottle them up in the first island chain, then they can't project serious military power because even the overland, you know, through Pakistan could be interrupted. It's a long, you know, it's it's very difficult, and, and that would trigger balancing of its own. The thing about, I mean, first of all, I would say you're absolutely right that we need it, strategies that are integrated, which is like a truism. I don't understand what this focus on integration is like. Well, obviously, and or it's like it's like asking too much that, I mean, no, no policy is ever perfectly integrated, but I think, I think what, um, what, what, and I, Wes is, I think made this point very, very memorably is, is actually the secondary and tertiary theaters is where we need the creative diplomacy. You know, we don't need the Frank McKenzie model where he just keeps asking for as much as he can possibly get. We need people in the, in the secondary theaters to understand that they are secondary or tertiary and they need to deal with scarcity. And that's and then deal with that and work with our allies accordingly and allies and partners and really communicate that candidly. I think this has been a failing of this administration is not to communicate. In fact, my experience with European diplomats and, and officials is they actually when I make these points and they say it's a little it's a little they're taken aback a bit, but they say, oh, I, I understand. OK, that actually makes sense. And then you can actually have a conversation about the future together rather than sort of pretending that things will go on as they have been in the past. So I think that but at the end of the day, if we have to choose, we need to choose Asia and we should choose it right now. Because, I mean, look, it's, we're all going to be working for the Asian market. I mean, it's just a not I, I'm, I'm happy to be proved wrong, but all the assessments and, and prognoses I see indicate that well over 50 percent of global GDP is going to be in Asia. So if China's allowed to dominate that, they will dominate the rest of the world anyway. So we have to choose. And, and it's and it's this kind of um, there's a great line I found in one thing, which is uh, Hazlitt, which I, I can't claim to have actually read it. I just found the quote, which is that uh, he was he was a, he was perfectly moderate. He was halfway between right and wrong. Like <laughs> we don't need that. We need to be we need to be in the right place. It's this halfway between right and wrong thing that's got us to where we are. And and so sometimes I, I even to myself, I sound extreme, except I'd rather leave it all in the field because we are, as you pointed out earlier, we may already be in the window and they're not going to stop at Taiwan. They're even talking about it now, how they're going to have a global Navy and military. I mean, they're not even hiding it anymore. So, I mean, you have to be willfully self-deceptive. You're not. But I mean, there are other people out there who are sort of willfully self-deceptive or deceptive about about the, the, the what the Chinese military footprint and economic footprint is going to look like. So that's where. And I think, you know, if people are listening to me, I was on with the French and the British yesterday. If they're listening to me. At least they. You know, it's like I, I feel like the American we're almost like a doctor. Would you like a doctor who tells you that you have a tumor or a heart condition, serious heart condition, or would you like, well, don't worry about it. You'd be fine. You know, I'd rather have the former. I'd like to, I'd rather survive. The the question that comes up often, even uh, by, uh, from mutual friends is, okay, Bridge, great idea, but what if, what if you're wrong, right? Mm -hmm. So we dial down elsewhere in the world, our allies and partners don't stand up, just like your, your notion that there could be a limited war between China and Russia uh, proves that doesn't go nuclear is is implausible, uh, right? Uh, in in that case, w- all of a sudden, if 
you know, somebody doesn't go to war, it undermines uh, the whole foundation of your nuclear credibility, right? I mean, so if the United States has made this case, its entire facade of alliances and partnerships sort of collapses, right, with the 36 nations or 38 or whatever it is that fall under our nuclear umbrella. What if we're wrong? What if you can't have a limited yeah. conventional war that doesn't go nuclear and our allies don't right. uh, pick up the slack as we show the, now, obviously they're changing, right? I mean, privately, I, I've talked to senior Germans, I've talked to French, uh, right? I mean, a lot of countries are getting the nature of this and I think have been making a lot of progress uh, mm -hmm. shifting, right? France wants to be an extremely positive role. The French CNO is in right. town, uh, Admiral Vandier talking, um, you know, about the Asia Pacific and France's uh, role in it, right? I mean, so I think France is gonna be a very Yeah, no, France, power. I think is the right kind of a better model. Uh, well, look, I mean, yeah, I mean, let me go go in them in, in, in sequence. I mean, if our allies and partners don't step up, I mean, in, in the secondary regions, we shouldn't change anything because like they will bear the they will bear the cost. So like if Germany doesn't do anything and Russia is able to, I mean, you know, Russian military assault into Europe would probably culminate somewhere. You know, I mean, the, the Polish army is serious. Right. And there's others you know, who are serious, the French, the British, the Scandinavians. So like it's not like Peter, the it's not like. Um, uh, Alexander or, or Joseph Stalin, right? I mean, so, you know, that would be bad for us, but it'd be a lot worse for the Europeans. So, but at the end of the day, if they force us to choose, that's on them. And I go into this at the, at the end of the book, um, you know, in, in the Middle East, uh, ditto. I mean, I, I guess, although, I mean, I, you know, the Iranians are, are, are a threat in a lot of ways, but they lack conventional military power projection to take over others, you know, and um, you know, people talk about the hybrid warfare stuff, but that's kind of, that's manageable. I'm just not, I mean, I, the situation will stabilize at some place that's tolerable for us. I mean, as I like to point out, we won the cold war with Syria and the other camp. So it can't be that important, you know? Um, I mean, I, 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 I don't say that from a humanitarian point of view, but just from a strategic point of view, I don't know why we're right. spending all this time focused on Syria. It's, it's ridiculous. Um, if allies and partners don't step up in, in the Pacific, uh, and this is particularly Japan and Taiwan, I think there's a sliding scale. So Australia is, India is, I mean, a lot. I, I would expect further progress. Just, you know, I mean, we've already seen it actually over the last year. I mean, the Japanese have been doing a lot and the Taiwans as well. So I want to give them credit. But, you know, there's a lot of different ways that we can, you know, because defending Japan and Taiwan is not a favor for them. I mean, it's generally true. It's like we cannot afford China to be dominant over such huge market areas. But, you know, when we were accustomed to this, we were much better at this problem in the Cold War. When the West Germans, were reluctant about militarizing and building up a large conventional force, we said, okay, well, our backup option is to fight a, a, a tactical nuclear war on your territory. And, uh, you know, Adenauer and Strauss and these guys, they didn't want that. So they built up uh, the Bundeswehr to defend forward. We were saying, oh, well, we'll you know what we'll do? We'll fight a defense in depth uh, all over West Germany. It's a lot of depth there, you know, and like, there's not a lot of sympathy for Germany these days in the 1950s, so 1960s. So is that okay? And they said, ah, nine. You know, uh, and and similarly with with Taiwan or Japan, you know, if they're not going to lean forward to be to have a good forward defense, then we can fight in, in this war in a lot of different ways that would not be good for them. So, and I think they should understand that. So, um, we have a lot of tools in our in our toolkit between you know uh, abandonment and you know sort of brain dead reassurance, which is kind of where we're, our, our, the blob is stuck on. Um, to your point about a limited nuclear war, I mean, I think with this audience, I can be candid. I don't take that argument very seriously. I mean, look, obviously, it's a bad idea to get in a war with a nuclear armed state like China. I don't I don't I don't advise it, but you have to be prepared because clearly they're prepared. Right. And I mean, both militaries 
are preparing for large-scale conflict, including limited nuclear options, I don't think the war would necessarily stay conventional. Uh, you could have, I mean, a limited war would still include limited nuclear exchanges, which could be extremely damaging. It's just limited compared to like a truly total war with, that was completely unrestrained. And so, I mean, we have to prepare. I mean, if you're serious about deterrence, the kind of people who tend to not say that we're, you can't fight a limited war, like uh, Jessica Matthews wrote this critique in Foreign Affairs. It's like, these are the, the people who are least credible that they would initiate a first nuclear use, right? I mean, if you're Dwight right. Eisenhower or Richard Nixon or something, you can say, I'm not gonna build up my conventional forces because I ordered Overlord and I'm gonna nuke you. And by the way, I have essentially a nuclear monopoly. Well, we clearly don't have a monopoly and whatever we had is going away as they build up their nuclear force. They have huge conventional forces. The stakes are lower by general perception than the Cold War. So we have to be prepared for it. And this is what we did. So, I mean, I just, I don't think it has a lot of purchase in the defense community. I think it's kind of a canard. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think, you know, and I think you, you pointed this out early is my whole point here is to deter a war, <laughs> right? right? But the way like we deterred, I mean, the Cold War is an imperfect analogy in a lot of ways. I think militarily it has a lot, we have a lot we can learn from. But the way we deterred war at the end, particularly once the Soviets, by some measures, even had an advantage in the strategic nuclear level, was we had a credible warfighting capacity that would that would work into a limited war? I mean, we didn't, we weren't like excited about it. <laughs> we weren't, you know. Right. And my my strategy is not offensive. My strategy is defensive. It's status quo oriented. But if they come at us in a way that's going to fundamentally make our American lives much worse, we should be prepared to to fight in a way that's that's rational. It gets back to Clausewitz. Um, uh, look, your your whole uh, point uh, about uh, you know, deterrence is paramount is uh, absolutely critical, right? You, you have to show the will, you have to show the toughness, you have to show the capability, uh, you have to show that allies and partnerships are actually solid. Uh, and, and ultimately, um, you know, that, that's how you deter. And the other guy just doesn't want to take the risk. The problem right. is when they don't see the will, when they see you're divided, when you see you don't have the capability uh, and that your allies and partners are, might be more interested in business uh, as usual, then you're really, really, really in 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 uh, goose cooking territory, which I believe is 165 degrees, and I think we, we're we've crossed 100 degrees uh, yeah. or so in this. Take in that, this. take that turkey out of the oven, right? And meanwhile, take, we're take over in the other room, worried about what channels on TV. You know, it's like no, no, no yes. focus. You're going to burn down your house. You know, exactly, exactly. Um, okay, uh, two two questions. Uh, one. Uh, has right. You make the case that just because we got out of Afghanistan does not mean all is lost in uh, Taiwan uh, or anywhere else. Briefly make that case. Sure. And also give me an example of both very quickly, good strategy and bad strategy, good strategy worth emulating, bad strategy worth avoiding. On, on Afghanistan. No, I mean, I think actually, I mean, I think it was catastrophically poorly handled. And I think for paying three over 3% of our income every year, we have a right to expect a better job. I mean, I think some people should go, you know, be fired for it. I mean, it's crazy that they weren't expecting something like this to happen. You know, I'm not an expert on Afghanistan, but come on. I mean, we spent a lot of money, you know, and people spent a lot of time there and they were surprised. I mean, come on. But I mean, I think it actually manifestly hasn't had a really material effect on allies' perception of their interests in the interests of the United States and being in Asia. I mean, it Japan has continued to its upward trajectory and its concern about China has been vocal about it on Taiwan, et cetera. I think what the, the, where there's been the, it's mattered from a credibility point of view is I think it's it's helped shape perceptions of the president and his administration in, in a similar way that like Khrushchev's read on Kennedy at, at Vienna in 1961. I think that's where the interconnectedness, not so much like America as a geopolitical actor, because I think people can see the difference between Afghanistan and the first island chain. 
but you know, pretty, pretty clearly. Uh, but it's more about how this administration operates and makes decisions and so forth. That's where I think it's had a more damaging effect. Um, on your second question, I'm sorry, it was Afghanistan. Good, and it was, good strategy and bad oh, good strategy. strategy. Well, good strategy. I think the, the American strategy, particularly, well, through the Cold War, militarily in Europe, not so much, not in Indochina. Uh, well, actually, I'll get to that. But I, I would say American strategy in Europe, I mean, was was pretty darn successful. I mean, particularly the early days, you know, Eisenhower leveraging the nuclear monopoly for a temporary advantage, you know, investing in the privates and the economy and so forth. And then later in the Cold War, I'd say 70s and 80s, where you had a very strong you know, you had the nuclear deterrent, but you didn't rely only on that. You had a very strong integrated conventional deterrent. I mean, I think that's the model for what I think of as the binding strategy, where you had multiple nations forward along the line so that everybody's skin was in the game, literally. Um, that would be a good example of a, a good strategy. Um, I mean, you know, I would say it's, it's a different kind of scenario, but, you know, George H.W. Bush in, in Iraq in 1990, I mean, the, not only the military strategy, but the coalition building and, you know, even making money on the topic, that would be good. Bad strategy, Vietnam, you get in a war where your your military willingness is below the level of what's necessary to achieve your effects. Um, that would be a, that would be a bad one. Uh, the wars of German unification, brilliant uh, application of relatively limited military engagements for enormous systemic rewards from from Berlin's point of view. Um, and then I guess the Austrians, as Wes has schooled me, would be the bad strategy there. Uh, um, Britain, um, in the years before World War I, geopolitically, a great strategy where they resolved problems with Japan, Russia, France, and the United States uh, to focus on Germany, but they didn't go far enough. I think if they'd, and this was obviously very hard, but if they'd, if they'd gone all the way and deployed forces into, into France uh, in, you know, before 1914, maybe the Germans would have calculated differently. So that would be... Um, those would be just kind of off the top of my head, some some good and bad that I would think of. Bridge, uh, thanks so very much uh, for spending uh, so much time with us. Great conversation. Uh, commend uh, the book to uh, folks uh, and uh, really enjoyed it. And you're welcome back on the program anytime. Thanks so much. Thanks, my friend. It was really great to talk with you.